This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Balloon by Donald Barthelme, which was published in The New Yorker in April of 1966. This ability on the part of the balloon to shift its shape, to change, was very pleasing, especially to people whose lives were rather rigidly patterned. Persons to whom change, although desired, was not available. The balloon, for the 22 days of its existence, offered the possibility in its randomness of getting lost. The story was chosen by Donald Antrim, the author of three novels and the story collection The Emerald Light in the Air. His memoir, One Friday in April, A Story of Suicide and Survival, will be published this month. Hi, Donald. Hey, how are you doing? All right. So, in one of the first podcasts in this series in 2007, you read and talked about a different Donald Barthelme story, I Bought a Little City. Right. And what made you choose Barthelme again? I love Donald Barthelme, for one. And The Balloon is one of my favorite stories of all time. It seemed too short to read for this, but it's not, apparently. Um, I have a soft spot. Why do you think you have a soft spot? Partly because Donald Barthelme was one of the first writers I ever read who made me feel like I wanted to be a writer. I read Donald Barthelme in high school, and there were some sitting on my, a few copies sitting on my father's shelf, and I took them off, took them to the beach. We lived in Miami at that time, and I just couldn't be bothered while I was reading them. They just went straight to me. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you first read them back then as a teenager and thought maybe you could write were you thinking you would write in a style like that? Not exactly. I'm not really sure what it was. I didn't begin writing for a very long time after that. I was still reading. When I was younger, I had the feeling that I had to read everything and before I could write, before I was allowed to write. It wasn't until I was in my mid-20s that I began to write anything in earnest. And with The Balloon, you said it's your favorite Donald Barthelme story. Why is that? What is it about this one? It's a love story. And for a long time reading it, I didn't really realize that because it comes so subtly at the very end of the story. But not long ago, I read it out loud to my wife, and it really hit me, that aspect of it, or that that fact. And I had tears. The emotionality of the story is intense for me. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, I and mean, we'll hear the story, but that emotion is, well, maybe it's it's an undercurrent, but it's not mentioned explicitly to the last paragraph of the story. Right. But you feel it earlier. I feel it earlier now, you know, after rereading it again mm-hmm. and again. And do you remember when you first read it? Oh, I must have been about 17 or 18, I think, when I was trying to read as if I were going to be a writer one day, Mm -hmm. reading everything I could get my hands on, reading D.H. Lawrence, reading Donald Barthelme. Those are very different writers. Sure. (laughs) But you've got to do that, I think. You know, you've got to read around. Yeah. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Donald Antrim reading The Balloon by Donald Barthelme. The Balloon... The balloon, B 
beginning at a point on 14th Street, the exact location of which I cannot reveal, expanded northward all one night while people were sleeping until it reached the park. There I stopped it. At dawn, the northernmost edges lay over the plaza. The free-hanging motion was frivolous and gentle. But experiencing a faint irritation at stopping, even to protect the trees, and seeing no reason the balloon should not be allowed to expand upward over the parts of the city it was already covering into the airspace to be found there, I asked the engineers to see to it. This expansion took place throughout the morning, a soft, imperceptible sighing of gas through the valves. The balloon then covered 45 blocks north-south and in a regular area east-west, as many as six crosstown blocks on either side of the avenue in some places. That was the situation, then. But it is wrong to speak of situations implying sets of circumstances leading to some resolution, some escape of tension. There were no situations, simply the balloon hanging there, muted heavy grays and browns for the most part, contrasting with walnut and soft yellows. A deliberate lack of finish, enhanced by skillful installation, gave the surface a rough, forgotten quality. Sliding weights on the inside, carefully adjusted, anchored the great, vera-shaped mass at a number of points. Now we have had a flood of original ideas in all media, works of singular beauty as well as significant milestones in the history of inflation. But at that moment there was only this balloon, concrete particular, hanging there. There were reactions. Some people found the balloon interesting. As a response, this seemed inadequate to the immensity of the balloon, the suddenness of its appearance over the city. On the other hand, in the absence of hysteria or other societally induced anxiety, it must be judged a calm, mature one. There was a certain amount of initial argumentation about the meaning of the balloon. This subsided because we have learned not to insist on meanings, and they are rarely even looked for now except in cases involving the simplest, safest phenomena. It was agreed that since the meaning of the balloon could never be known absolutely, extended discussion was pointless, or at least less meaningful than the activities of those who, for example, hung green and blue paper lanterns from the warm gray underside in certain streets, or seized the occasion to write messages on the surface, announcing their availability for the performance of unnatural acts or the availability of acquaintances. Daring children jumped, especially at those points where the balloon hovered close to a building so that the gap between balloon and building was a matter of a few inches, or points where the balloon actually made contact, exerting an ever so slight pressure against the side of a building so the balloon and building seemed a unity. The upper surface was so structured 
that a landscape was presented, small valleys as well as slight knolls or mounds. Once atop the balloon, a stroll was possible, or even a trip from one place to another. There was pleasure in being able to run down an incline, then up the opposing slope, both gently graded, or in making a leap from one side to the other. Bouncing was possible because of the pneumaticity of the surface and even falling, if that was your wish. That all these varied motions, as well as others, were within one's possibilities in experiencing the upside of the balloon was extremely exciting for children accustomed to the city's flat, hard skin. But the purpose of the balloon was not to amuse children. Two, the number of people, children and adults, who took advantage of the opportunities described was not so large as it might have been. A certain timidity, lack of trust in the balloon was seen. There was, furthermore, some hostility. Because we had hidden the pumps, which fed helium to the interior, and because the surface was so vast that the authorities could not determine the point of entry, that is, the point at which the gas was injected. A degree of frustration was evidenced by those city officers into whose province such manifestations normally fell. The apparent purposelessness of the balloon was vexing, as was the fact that it was there at all. Had we painted, in great letters, Laboratory Tests Prove, or 18% More Effective, on the sides of the balloon, this difficulty would have been circumvented, but I could not bear to do so. On the whole, these officers were remarkably tolerant, considering the dimensions of the anomaly, this tolerance being the result of first secret tests conducted by night that convinced them that little or nothing could be done in the way of removing or destroying the balloon, and secondly, a public warmth that arose, not uncolored by touches of the aforementioned hostility toward the balloon from ordinary citizens. As a single balloon must stand for a lifetime of thinking about balloons, so each citizen expressed, in the attitude he chose, a complex of attitudes. One man might consider that the balloon had to do with the notion sullied, as in the sentence, the big balloon sullied the otherwise clear and radiant Manhattan sky. That is, the balloon was, in this man's view, an imposture, something inferior to the sky that had formerly been there, something interposed between the people and their sky. But in fact, it was January. The sky was dark and ugly. It was not a sky you could look up into, lying on your back in the street, with pleasure, unless pleasure for you proceeded from having been threatened, from having been misused. And the underside of the balloon, by contrast, was a pleasure to look up into. We had seen to that. Muted grays and browns, for the most part, contrasted with walnut and soft, forgotten yellows. And so while this man was thinking sullied, 
Still, there was an admixture of pleasurable cognition in his thinking, struggling with the original perception. Another man, on the other hand, might view the balloon as if it were part of a system of unanticipated rewards, as when one's employer walks in and says, Here, Henry, take this package of money I have wrapped for you, because we have been doing so well in the business here, and I admire the way you bruise the tulips, without which bruising your department would not be a success, or at least not the success that it is. For this man, the balloon might be a brilliantly heroic muscle-and-pluck experience, even if an experience poorly understood. Another man might say, without the example of dash, it is doubtful that dash would exist today in its present form and find many to agree with him or to argue with him. Ideas of bloat and float were introduced, as well as concepts of dream and responsibility. Others engaged in remarkably detailed fantasies having to do with a wish either to lose themselves in the balloon or to engorge it. The private character of these wishes, of their origins, deeply buried and unknown, was such that they were not much spoken of. Yet there is evidence that they were widespread. It was also argued that what was important was that you felt when you stood under the balloon. Some people claimed that they felt sheltered, warmed, as never before, while enemies of the balloon felt or reported feeling constrained, a heavy feeling. Critical opinion was divided. Monstrous pourings. Harp. XXXXXXX. Certain contrasts with darker portions. Inner joy. Large square corners. Conservative eclecticism that has so far governed modern balloon design. Abnormal vigor. Warm, soft, lazy passages. Has unity been sacrificed for a sprawling quality? Kel catastrophe. Munching. People began, in a curious way, to locate themselves in relation to aspects of the balloon. I'll be at that place where it dips down into 47th Street almost to the sidewalk near the Alamo Chili House. Or, why don't we go stand on top and take the air and maybe walk around a bit, where it forms a tight, curving line with the facade of the Gallery of Modern Art. Marginal intersections offered entrances within a given time duration, as well as warm, soft, lazy passages in which... But it is wrong to speak of marginal intersections. Each intersection was crucial. None could be ignored. As if walking there, you might not find someone capable of turning your attention in a flash from old exercises to new exercises. Each intersection was crucial. Meeting of balloon and building, meeting of balloon and man, meeting of balloon and balloon. It was suggested that what was admired about the balloon was finally this, that it was not limited 
or defined. Sometimes a bulge, blister, or subsection would carry all the way east to the river on its own initiative in the manner of an army's movements on a map, as seen in a headquarters remote from the fighting. Then that part would be, as it were, thrown back again, or would withdraw into new dispositions. The next morning, that part would have made another sortie, or disappeared altogether. This ability on the part of the balloon to shift its shape, to change, was very pleasing, especially to people whose lives were rather rigidly patterned, persons to whom change, although desired, was not available. The balloon, for the 22 days of its existence, offered the possibility in its randomness of getting lost, of losing oneself in contradistinction to the grid of precise rectangular pathways under our feet. The amount of specialized training currently needed and the consequent desirability of long-term commitments has been occasioned by the steadily growing importance of complex machinery in virtually all kinds of operations. As this tendency increases, more and more people will turn in bewildered inadequacy to solutions for which the balloon may stand as a prototype or rough draft. I met you under the balloon on the occasion of your return from Norway. You asked if it was mine. I said it was. The balloon, I said, is a spontaneous autobiographical disclosure having to do with the unease I felt at your absence and with sexual deprivation. But now that your visit to Bergen has been terminated, it is no longer necessary or appropriate. Removal of the balloon was easy. Trailer trucks carried away the depleted fabric, which is now stored in West Virginia, awaiting some other time of unhappiness, sometime, perhaps, when we were angry with one another. That was Donald Antrim reading The Balloon by Donald Barthelme. The story appeared in The New Yorker in April of 1966 and was included in Barthelme's collection, Unspeakable Practices, Unnatural Acts, which was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in 1968. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. 
So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Donald, the central character in the story is a balloon. Right. But although it sometimes bulges out unpredictably in different directions, it doesn't really have its own agency. It's controlled by our narrator. Who's this narrator? I imagine him as someone living downtown. (laughs) (laughs) Below 14th Street or? (laughs) Somewhere below 14th Street. You know. It's never bothered me to figure out who he is so much. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a strong sense of the balloon and a visual sense of it, Mm -hmm. especially the hills and little sloping valleys on the top of it where people run and play and walk. Mm -hmm. Sort of a town above a town. Right. The narrator, well, he has a lot of things to say about the balloon. And early on, he comments on the situation, and then he corrects himself and says, this is not a situation. This is not something that leads to a resolution. It's just a balloon. Right. Why does he make that distinction, do you think? Well, I think he speaks to the purposelessness of the balloon as a balloon. It's not a permanent installment, for one thing. It's a manifestation of his grief or his discomfort. We get that sense, I think, in reading the story. We don't get a sense of why that is until the very, very end. I mean, there's a point at which he says straight out, there's no meaning to the balloon, it's purposeless, or it's apparently purposeless. And yet the entire story is about trying to find meaning. Right, he posits various meanings, and sometimes he imagines those meanings as meanings held in the populace. Mm Mm-hmm different people's ideas about what the balloon might be or might not be or what it might represent or what it might be used for, mm-hmm. why it's there. But he eliminates those reasons as we go through for the most part. So why do we get them? Is he trying to kind of preempt our thinking? I think we get them because, because we people, readers, think that way. We may be looking for meaning in the story mm-hmm. or in our lives. It isn't to be found. It makes sense to me that there would be a population seeking meaning or seeking some idea about the utility of the balloon or making use of the balloon as if it had, and it does in fact have utility uh, for some. Uh, children who jump from building ledges onto the edge of the balloon, so on. And there are many meanings that Bartholomew suggests. Mm-hmm. So, It's a story about the meaninglessness of life. (laughs) It's a story about the meaninglessness of life, while at the same time it's a story that allows for all kinds of different meanings, possible meanings. Right. Right. So do you think the the balloon is life? Is that one interpretation, one possible? I had never thought of it that way, but maybe the balloon is only there for 22 days. It's got a short life. The balloon's not really alive, but it does seem like a creature, Mm -hmm. you know. 
I imagine it is a vast, pillowy form that alights on the tops of buildings and squeezes itself between buildings, and it's got some kind of life for the people below. But I've never imagined it that way exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, another way, and and this is certainly implied in the story, another way of looking at it is that it's a creative work. It's a story, perhaps, mm-hmm. a Donald Barthelme story that people right. are responding to. I have to laugh when he finds the most, like, the worst comment on it is to say it's interesting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> such a Such a damning with faint praise. Um, but then he kind of runs through these lists of sort of critical commentary that make no sense, but uh, sound official. And you feel, or I feel at least on some level, he's perhaps mocking the critics. Maybe. I've never imagined Donald Barthelme really mocking, but it may be that he's having fun with the critics. Yeah. Um, one thing Barthelme is not is he doesn't have a smirk. Mm-hmm. To me, it's a story about innocence as well in some way. This new thing that he's made and created. It's not interesting to him because he's getting through a rough time, which we don't know until the end. Mm-hmm. It's also not interesting because of its colors. It's gray and brown. There it is, just a balloon. It's just a balloon? But it has to stand for a lifetime of thinking about balloons. Right, and, and the narrator says as much. Yeah. It seems to me that sometimes he's trying to sort of deliberately throw us off the scent, you know, with the, by saying it has no meaning or then mm-hmm. saying it's apparent purposelessness is this or that. You know, if it's apparent, then perhaps it does have a purpose. Right. But its purpose isn't to amuse children, so what is it? You know, there's there's a lot of solicitation in the story, mm-hmm. in a sense, to, to make us think about this balloon and anything it could possibly represent or be. See, I imagine Barthelme writing this story and basically having fun. Mm-hmm. And if it's about meaning and meaninglessness, then it would be fun to go through a variety of possible meanings and then shoot them down which the story does in a way. Mm-hmm. What it means to Bartholomew, it may also mean to the narrator. Right. Is there a difference between the two? Well, Bartholomew never inflated a balloon above, <laughs> above Manhattan. But perhaps Bartholomew felt grief and longing for a lover who had gone to Norway. I think he must have. And, and Maybe he wrote the story during that time. Right. And in that sense, the story is the balloon. Sure. Right. Sure. Though the story isn't gray and brown with soft yellows, <laughs> which is, it's it's just fascinating to me that the specificity of some of the details. Right. You know, because if what we have is a giant symbol, something soaring above Manhattan to represent grief, why does it have these specific qualities? It's concrete. It's a balloon. It's a huge balloon. So it has to have a kind of concrete nature. So these are concrete descriptions, like the surface of it that people take trips on. Mm-hmm. And the colors. One of the colors is forgotten yellows, I believe. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one of the first hints, I suppose, that you get that this is perhaps an emotional balloon. 
The balloon is real. The balloon is not just an idea. Uh, the, the narrator really does inflate a balloon, and the balloon really does cover part of lower Manhattan. It's a real balloon, as far as I'm concerned. So you have a balloon that's real, that's tactile, that's described in a, in a concrete way, and yet is also seen or interpreted as a metaphor for a lot of things. And in a way, it's a perfect metaphor because you take a balloon, it's hollow. You fill it with air, you fill it with gas, you fill it with something. You fill it with whatever you want. Exactly. And in this case, it's filled, yes, it's filled with helium, but it's also filled with longing. Well, that's the metaphorical part. Yeah. In the meantime, it's filled with helium and it's inflated. Mm-hmm. So I take it to be a real balloon that's really made by this character, even though we know that that's impossible. And then when you get to the end and he's sort of revealed, well, in fact, this balloon is a manifestation of my longing and my deprivation while this lover was away. Even then, it's still physical because he takes it down, but it's just fabric that's stored somewhere. It's stored in West Virginia. <laughs> Why? Why? Yes. Because he doesn't have a use for it any longer. But uh, the very last line makes me think... You know, it's waiting there in case it's needed again, and it might be needed again if they become angry with each other. Right. So why would anger cause the balloon to be inflated? Because it would be a break in their relationship, and it would be a rift. It would put him into discomfort again, mm -hmm. longing. And the balloon is his solution for discomfort, or it's his representation of discomfort. It's his way of getting through. We say that. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a solution. It's only needed while he's in discomfort. Yeah, right that way. while he's in longing and while he's in distress. Mm -hmm. So yes, the balloon is a manifestation of his distress. But that doesn't change the fact that it's a real balloon that he's really constructed with engineers and everyone else. What do you think of the tone of the story? I mean, I, I feel it's almost written like a science experiment, you know? Hmm with the precise sort of, this is where it stops, this is where it goes, this is what it does, the kind of precise observation of what happens when you put this object in this place. I hadn't thought of it as a science experiment. I can, I can read it somewhat as a letter. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got an epistolary quality. It's explaining this to some third party, you know, me mm -hmm. and you. Mm-hmm. What do you make of those two um, opposing interpretations? You know, one man sees it as sullying the sky. Well, in fact, this, it's January and the sky right. is nasty. Right. And the other one sees it as this sort of unexpected office bonus, <laughs> you know, <laughs> some cash in an envelope that's been handed to you. I see that as two of many interpretations that could be written but aren't, you know. They're funny. Yeah then some of it gets uh, almost inscrutable, mm -hmm. um, particularly towards the end when you have those sort of marginal intersections and crucial intersections, and you have right. uh, someone who's going to turn you off old exercises and onto new exercises. It becomes a bit abstract. Yeah. But is there is there meaning behind the abstraction? There's only so much you can puzzle out here. I think yeah. you just have to accept it for what it is. Yeah. Just like you accept the balloon. Yeah. I mean, 
the same thing is true of I Bought a Little City, which I read all those years ago. Mm-hmm. We have to assume that the narrator has really bought Corpus Christi, Texas, and is making changes mm-hmm. to the city. You just have to take it as it is. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only so much interpretive work you can do. These stories are experiences. They last for as long as we're reading, and then they last beyond that. So you say you were reading this for the first time, and you get to the last paragraph, and you discover that, in fact, this balloon is not any of those things that have been posited, but it's this autobiographical symbol manifestation. Does that then change how you've read everything that came before that? Yeah, it does. For me, it does at this point. It did when I when I read it to my wife and and felt the emotion for the first time in it. And I'd read it any number of times before that. Bartholomew was a very important writer for me when I was younger. Mm-hmm. It felt free, you know. But when I read it this time several years ago from Maria, and I felt that emotion, it changed the, the weight of the story entirely for me. It gave the story much more weight and much more gravity. Do you think there's any contradiction in the fact that the story insists on meaninglessness, the meaninglessness of the balloon, the purposelessness of the balloon, right? and yet it's a story that's a love story, mm-hmm. and love stories are filled with meaning. It's all right. about the meaning. Right. Well, we get a bit of that meaning at the very end. It's only a short paragraph, but we find meaning in that. Maybe we find more meaning in that than we do in the balloon. Mm-hmm. But no, I don't really see a conflict there. I don't think I do, given my life. No, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't see any problem there. Obviously, Bartholomew did not ever construct a story in a traditional way. Right. I mean, how do you think he constructed this one? Do you think that he knew all along where it was going? Was he writing towards that ending? Bartholomew writes an essay called Not Knowing, in which... He describes the importance and the value of not knowing that, of not knowing where you're going and what you're writing. He's against the outline that the writer fills in. I am too. It's hard to say. I mean, he may not have known where he was going with this. He may not have known until he got to the end what that end was. When when you start a story, do you know where it's ending? No. No. Never. I mean, I'm thinking of your novel, The Verificationist, which starts with a kind of scene of inflation (laughs) and and floating upwards. Right. And when you began that book, did you know how and when these people would come down? I didn't know a bit. It took a long time to to make progress Mm -hmm. because I didn't know. And I had been stuck with that in the beginning for a while. And then I had the idea of him floating to the ceiling, and that was greatly liberating, but I still didn't know what it was going to be, what he was going to do. I've never known where I was going mm-hmm. in, when I was writing fiction. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that's part of why, why Bartholomew is such a touch point for you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The balloon is a much taught story. It's right. a much read story. It's sort of, if you read only one Bartholomew story in an anthology is probably the balloon. Right. Why do you think that is? How does it stand out from his other stories? It's accessible. I mean, it's less abstract. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, it's short, too, so that probably helps. But this is a very contained story, mm-hmm. you know. And I think it would be teachable with that ending like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people talk about, endlessly talk about Bartholomew as a postmodernist or a writer of metafiction. Do you buy into that kind of classification of what he does? No, not really. I mean, when I started reading Donald Bartholomew, I didn't have any sense of what those things were. Mm-hmm. And I still don't, in a way. No, I just think of him as a great writer. Mm-hmm. If that's acceptable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Who has an element of play always. Yeah, always. Yeah. He's fooling around. Yeah. I just love him. Yeah. That's why I wanted to read this again after reading I Bought a Little City. Uh Uh-huh. If I come and do this again and read for a podcast, I'll definitely choose another writer. I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did choose another one in the middle. You read Dennis Johnson. Right. The story work, which is also a very playful and inventive story. Mm-hmm. What is it that most attracts you to a particular story or writer? Um, a convincing world. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Bartholomew is making a world here. It's New York, but it's not our New York, but it's a world. Dennis Johnson and work makes a world. So I would say that that the concretely fully described world or enough described world is something that draws me in. It's not just a balloon that drifts around and that's all we know about it. It's got texture, it's got extent, it's got borders. It can be blown about on a wind. It requires helium. It's a very, to me, a very concrete story. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Donald Barthelme, who died in 1989 at the age of 58, was the author of 16 books of fiction, including the story collection Unspeakable Practices, Unnatural Acts, and the novel Snow White. Donald Barthelme Collected Stories, edited by Charles McGrath, was published by Library of America earlier this year. Donald Antrim is the author of the memoir The Afterlife and three novels, including The Hundred Brothers and The Verificationist. His new memoir, One Friday in April, A Story of Suicide and Survival, will be published by Norton this month. He's been publishing in The New Yorker since 1996 and was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship in 2013. You can download more than 170 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.